Good morning. Welcome to you all, and a special uh, welcome to visitors that might be here. And uh, we hope you received a warm welcome at the door as you came in. Also, a special welcome to uh, those that uh, will join us by uh, media. And we hope that uh, this morning's service will be a blessing to you. Well, this is the last day of July, and it feels like summer is fast slipping away. But take heart, we have a few months of summer left. So let's rejoice in song and meditate on the good news in the gospel. I would like to share with you one of my favorite uh, scripture verses found in Philippians 4, 4 to verse 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So now as we prepare for worship, we will begin with the opening prayer. And when I come to the part as the Lord taught us to pray, please join with me in the Lord's Prayer. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have created seasons so that we can partake of planting and experience harvesting. We come before you with a thankful heart for your gift of grace. Make clear to us as to the calling you have in mind for us. Thank you, Lord, for a voice to sing your praises and a will to build a relationship with you. Thank you for preparing us in teaching us how to pray. This morning, we come before you in response as you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heather, please uh, service in song. Good morning. Uh, the first song that we are going to sing this morning is 10,000 Reasons.
you to stand if you're able for the next two songs that we're going to sing. My hope is 
built on nothing less. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone.
Let's take a look at the bulletin on page two. The Winker Bible Camp and other Bible camps are again active this summer. Keep them in your prayers as they are a great opportunity for young people to get to know the Lord and also bring the good news home to their parents. Also remember Jessica Siemens. She reported in her newsletter her responsibilities on the activity of, at camp and they're into a special street ministry project in downtown Winnipeg. God bless their outreach. Good health to the staff and campers and energy for the cabin leaders to endure the leadership responsibility expected of them. The worship service start time has been moved to 9.30 a.m. for the month of August, except for August the 14th, which is a Harvest Festival Sunday. We hope this will provide a little more time to make it to church for those further away, or the 15 minutes needed for another reason. Uh, VBS, it looks like the program is filling up, thanks to the great effort put in by the four leaders and the volunteers. And I would like to ask the leaders and volunteers to rise, and we'd like to recognize them in our prayers. Would you please get up? All right. I think there are more. They might not be here today. So thank you, and keep them in prayer. And, and there's a great blessing that's awaiting to the children that will come, and also to their parents. Then on to page three. Our church family concerns. In Boundary Trails, we have, uh, there are Menno and Nettie Jansen, uh, apparently, Corny Friesen uh, has come uh, out of hospital. And Jeremiah Lexier, uh, Annie Weens, and Sarah Neufeld. Uh She turned 100 last fall. Not in a bulletin are in Swan Lake, uh, Tina Rempel in Agatha Wall, and in Pilot Mound, uh, Henry Thiessen. And take note, the Harvest Festival Sunday morning service should be very interesting with special speakers and the proceeds will go to a good cause. And I couldn't help but uh, put in and mention anniversary congratulations to Bill and Jane Brown, 63 uh, years of marriage, and Henry and Hilda Hamm at 65 years. Congratulations. Let us pray. I should say, uh, uh, please review the rest of the bulletin at your leisure. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your unconditional love and that you rejoice when we come to you 
We thank you for the season before us. When the seeds of spring bear fruit in fall, the enjoyment of the harvest is beginning, as is your joy when we submit to your harvest. We bring before you the summer camps for the children and pray that they be inspired by your word and when they share their learnings within their families, that it bear much fruit. We hold in prayer Jessica Siemens as she serves at camp along with others. Give them guidance in teaching and especially as they reach out to the people on the streets in Winnipeg. We pray for their safekeeping and that they be a blessing to others. We are also mindful of the VBS program to begin next week. We give thanks for the leaders who have diligently welcomed children to come and receive the special teaching of your love and your care for them. Give guidance to the leaders and volunteers as they teach the children and bless their outreach. Lord, we bring before you those that are in hospital, Mena and Nettie Jansen, uh, Jeremiah Lexier, Anna Weens, and Sarah Neufeld, and those that are struggling with health at home. We pray that your healing hand be upon them. Some feel that their time is drawing near to enjoy their place at your feet and see your face. We too pray that their prayers be answered. We also note that you have blessed those within this church with many years of marriage and in life. Your love has gifted us with purpose and ministry. We pray for your guidance as we seek to fulfill that purpose. Now, as we receive the offerings and share of the bountiful blessings you have provided, we pray that it will serve the blessings you have in mind. Thank you, Lord, that you have inspired Pastor Vic to cause us to reflect on who are we and what our purpose might be in your service. Give him the words to speak and open our hearts to receive the message intended for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Now, would the uh, ushers please come forward to receive the offering while Heather provides worship and song, after which Susan will uh, bring the scripture reading.
There's going to be a slight change in our scripture passage for this morning. Uh, it was uh, printed differently in the bulletin, but I'll be reading from Romans 8, verses 1 to 17, and then 28 to 31. So if you have your Bibles with you, please join me in reading Romans 8, 1 to 17. And the section is entitled, Life Through the Spirit. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in, in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have no obligation, oh, sorry, we have an obligation, but is not in the sinful nature, but to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And then verses 28 to 31. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, and that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Thus far the reading of God's word. Good morning. 
It's good to be with you here this morning. And I'm glad that so many are here on a long weekend. That's really good to see. Today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8. Because I'm trying to answer another question. And the question is, who are we? We've been through some deep plowing, and we've learned what it means to ask in Jesus' name and found out that it's an impossible command because we are not capable of representing Jesus well. And then we discovered that all of God's commands are impossible for us and found out that the answer is to remain in Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches. And all of this prompted another question. Why is it that God is so intent on working with us when we fall so far short of the mark, when we're not capable? We know that he has made a way and he has equipped us with everything uh, good for doing his will. But why is he bothering with us? Who are we that it matters so much to him? This is not a question without depth, but even on the surface, it sounds like a reasonable question, especially in a world that struggles increasingly with identity. How do you identify? If I said I identified as a woman, every government in this country would affirm my claim and support it. Many people claim a different identity than the one they were born with, and somehow we're rolling with the punches through what looks like the world's greatest identity crisis. Not only does our society believe that identity can be contrary to the facts, it believes that identity can be changed at will. People's identity claims seem to have little to do with reality. Identity can even change in a moment. And it can change again tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after that. Is our identity like clothing? Just toss it aside and put on a new one? If I change, sorry, if who I am can change, then who am I really? How can I be known? How would Mrs. Engbrecht know who she is married to if her husband changes her identity, or if her husband changes his identity? Am I who I feel like I am today? Or am I who I thought I was yesterday? Or who I might be tomorrow? Maybe all of the above. Does it mean that my preferences, my thinking, my relationships, and even my beliefs change with my shifting identity? Does everything change? How did something as solid and stable as identity become so unstable? Identity is very important. It's important to God and it's important to us. Our identity tells us who we belong to, who our people are. 
Our identity informs us of the things we value and the kind of company we keep. Our identity also dictates our moral code, the things that we believe are right and wrong. Our identity also tells us who we worship and what our purpose is, what our goals are, and what our direction is. Without identity, we don't know who we are. <clears throat> As Christians, our identity in Christ is crucial to living out our faith. In the Bible, God reveals to us his identity and he reveals to us our identity. Thankfully, our identity is not all wrapped up in our sexuality and our sexual preferences. Even though our sexuality is an important identifier of who we are, because it is attached to, or, or attached to that are certain roles for men and women in home and church and society. <clears throat> We're different. And I'm thankful that God has made it easy for us to know what our basic identity is. God created two different but complementary identity formats. We have either internal or external reproductive organs. One format is called male and one is called female, each with accompanying strengths and abilities. Science can confirm this, and if I'm right, so can psychology. Male and female are distinguishable, not only in appearance and function, but also uh, we also think and experience life differently as male and female. <clears throat> Identity is also something that does not change on a whim, nor does it rely on how one feels. Identity is actually quite stable, if we're willing to recognize it. Our identity might change slightly when we change careers. If somebody is a farmer, then we, part of that person's identity is he's a farmer. But if he goes from farming to trucking, then he's not a farmer anymore, he's a trucker. So little shift in identity, right? Maybe when our, our social status changes or when we relocate and associate with a different community. Those are all subtle changes in identity. But the biggest identity change happens when we exchange one belief system for another. <clears throat> when the unbeliever becomes a believer or a believer abandons faith and returns to unbelief. In my opinion, that is the biggest identity shift that can take place in a person. I believe it is also the most anchoring component of our identity, what we believe and who we worship. Identity is critically important for making decisions about how we live because we make those decisions based on who we are our preferences, our convictions, our goals, our aspirations. So as followers of Christ, who are we? 
The reason I ask this question, as I said before, is a follow-up of where we have been in recent sermons. God is obviously bothering with us, and so the identity question has arisen. I think this is another important question in understanding how to live the Christian life. Christians are not like any other people. There are good reasons for us to live with confidence in a dark and shattered world. We are the ones who possess the true gospel, and we are the ones who are charged with proclaiming that truth. We have a relationship with God that is not possible for those who do not know Jesus. Those who do not know or love Jesus are enemies of God, and our fellowship with them is limited because our identity is in Christ. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or or what fellowship has light with darkness? Identity is huge in knowing where we stand with God, where we stand with people, and where we stand with the world. So who are we? Well, I found an answer in Romans 8. I don't know if this is the best passage to, to give us our identity, but I certainly found some things in there that clue us in as to who we are and what's, what's important about our identity. I'm going to work my way through parts of this chapter, the parts that were read for us this morning. And I won't explain everything. There's lots in Romans 8 that we won't even get to, and you might be sorry that we didn't talk about it more. But... Um, and I'm even going to leave out a section, but I'm going to focus on the pieces in this chapter that tell us our identity and then what it means for living the Christian life. The first identity piece is that we are in Christ, and this affects everything, how we think, how we live, and how we view the world. The opening verse of chapter 8 is an awesome verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's the identity, in Christ Jesus. After all we've been through, isn't it good to know that there is no condemnation for us? We talked about all these impossible commands and how we couldn't keep them, but we're not under condemnation. Do you know that God does not look at us as though we are a people to be judged? Our deeds will be judged, and each one will, uh, will be rewarded accordingly, but our souls are not condemned, and therefore we will not be judged. We are not under condemnation. <laughs> Isn't that great? What else? Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done Sorry, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So what has God done? He has saved us from sin and death. All that the law can do is make us conscious of it 
And then we just know that we're sinners. God is the one who saves. Continuing on. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So there's our second identity piece. We are the people who walk by the spirit. What does that mean for daily life? It means that we are the standard in the world for right behavior. And that is why the world hates Christians. Right behavior rebukes wrong behavior. You may have been in a situation at some point where you're working with people who swear and curse. Doesn't usually take terribly long before they notice that you do not swear and curse. And what often happens is that the swearing person will stop swearing in your company. Your right behavior condemns wrong behavior in the other person. In the same way, when Jesus lived among us, he lived a sinless life. And that sinless life condemned sin in every person. Sin is condemned in the flesh so that we would fulfill the law in right living, which we can do because we walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. We are the people who walk according to the spirit. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who walk according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Did you get that? <laughs> A person without the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We've had this unspoken assumption among us Mennonites uh, for a long time, I think, at least this is my sense, that if, you know, if you've got the right last name, if you're a Dirksen or a Friesen or a Weeb, then, you know, you're not, you're not outside the family of God. Except this verse makes it quite clear that there is no grandfathering of faith to the next generation. Without the spirit of Christ, you do not belong to him. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. This statement sounds a little bit difficult on the surface. Living in these natural bodies without Christ is to live out the selfish pursuits of our natural desires. This leads to sin and finally to death. Though we are using these bodies, they're already condemned to die. 
We see this at every funeral. But then Paul says, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And what does that mean? I think it means that God's spirit is our life because we have been made right with God. When we are reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection, he deposits his spirit in us. And he gives us life in these condemned bodies. Listen to verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It kind of blows me away how God makes impossible demands of us, condemns the bodies we live in, yet makes it possible for us to make use of these bodies while he gives us life in the spirit, enabling us to live the life he requires. It's amazing, isn't it? We are the people who walk by the spirit. There's so much more in this uh, chapter about the spirit, but again, I'm sticking to What is our identity here? So far we've uncovered two pieces of our identity. One is that we are in Christ and the other is that we are the people who walk by the Spirit. So verse 12. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And here's our next identity piece. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Just to get this out of the way real quick, this is not a statement about gender. This is a statement about position in the family. In Jewish custom, the sons received the inheritance. So spiritually, we are all sons because all believers share in the inheritance. This is a statement about our position in the family and it is a statement about our identity. We are sons of God. And as sons, we belong. And as sons, we share in the inheritance. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Having come into God's household, we are not merely servants. We are sons. We are his children. We are saved from sin, a cruel master that thrives on fear. But children who are loved by their father do not live in fear, but in the confidence and knowledge that they belong to their father and that he will tend to their every need. As God's children, we have this assurance as our spirit 
sorry, as his spirit communicates to our spirit that we belong, that we are his. Therefore, we are heirs with Christ of the inheritance that God has prepared for us. We are sons of the living God. So three identity pieces. We're in Christ, we walk by the spirit, and we are the sons of God. I'm gonna skip down now to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So our fourth piece. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God has had his eye on us since before we existed. Psalm 139 says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So God has had his eye on us for a long time. And he knows from eternity past what he wanted to do with us. Discussing what it means to be predestined is not really the focus of this message, but it always raises a question, and so I'll give a quick explanation. There are two interpretations, at least, and I'll just touch on both of them. One interpretation is that God chooses which people will be conformed to the image of his son, that is, whom he will save. This is met with the objection that it is not fair to choose which people to save before they have had opportunity to make their choice. One argument for this view is that God needn't have chosen anyone since we are all sinners born into sin. But he did choose to save some. That's one argument. Another is this, found in Romans 9. Paul wrote, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the argument continues a few verses later in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, in desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So the argument for God choosing beforehand whom to save and whom to condemn is based on God's sovereign right to do as he chooses with the work of his hands for his own purposes. 
That's one argument or one position on predestined. Another interpretation of predestined is that, God, is that those who choose God are those whom God has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, it is assumed that people have the choice to respond to God's revelation. And God chooses those that respond to him in faith. One argument to support this view is that if God selects believers before they have opportunity to choose, it is a violation of at least two principles. One principle is the principle of free choice. God requires man to make a choice. Choose life, he says in Deuteronomy 30, 19. So does God actually give man a free will to choose or does God allow us to think so when he's already made the choice about whom to save? Do we have a choice or don't we? There's a lot more to that than I can say here. The other one is about the principle of love. God commands us to love him. If we are forced to love, then it isn't love. Love cannot be coerced. The choice to love must be completely voluntary and without compulsion. So do we actually have the choice to love God if he has already decided who should love him? Can we actually obey the command to love if our choices are manipulated or made for us? So there you've got some thoughts about what predestination might mean. I'm sure you have your own thoughts. I have mine. I hold to the latter interpretation that God chose beforehand that those who choose him will be conformed to the image of his son. So back to the point I'm making. And that is that God knew long ago who would believe. He foreknew us. And he predestined that those who believe would be conformed to the image of his son. We are called to faith. We are called to service. We were made right with God. And one day we will be glorified. And this sequence of events began before our birth. And it will finish after we die. But these things are all part of our identity. So who are we? We are in Christ. We are the people who are in Christ. Therefore, we are not under condemnation. We are free people. Number two, we are the people who walk according to the spirit. Therefore, we put to death the deeds of the body and practice right living. Number three, we are sons of God. Therefore, the spirit of Jesus bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. I didn't say anything about the suffering with him. That'll have to come in another sermon, but uh, 
There it is, you can uh, study that a little bit further on your own. And number four, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. We were foreknown. We were called to faith and service and we are reconciled to God and one day we will be glorified. These things do not change. This is who we are. Our, our identity is rock solid. So now listen to this. I'm reading now at chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor, any, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, of all the people on earth and throughout history, no one can live with greater joy and confidence than us Christians, because we are sons of the Most High God. We are loved by our Father in heaven. We are inhabited by his Spirit. We have been given the mind of Christ. We are equipped to obey all God's impossible commands. We possess the gospel message that God wants the world to hear. We are the people who stand on truth. We are the meek who will inherit the earth. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world and the fragrance of Christ. If there is any people in the world that can live with joy and confidence, purpose and meaning, it is us, the children of God. And so, let me read this response from Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. 
That is our God. And that is who we are. <laughs> what a blessing. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, it, it is almost beyond our, it is beyond our capacity to comprehend why you bother with us, but you do, but also who we are because we belong to you. Thank you, Father, that we were predestined long ago to be conformed to the image of your Son, to be in Christ, to walk according to your Spirit, and to be called the sons of God. Would you give us your grace and strength, as you always have, to continue walking before you with much joy and confidence? Hallowed be your name. Amen. Let's uh, respond to that by singing Blessed Assurance. Uh, the words will be on the screen if you prefer to use your hymnals. It's number 544. Uh, we'll sing verses 1 and 2, and then Pastor Victor will come up and give the benediction, and then we'll sing verse 3. stand for the benediction. I leave you with this benediction and this blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And now this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Oh no, one more verse. <laughs> Perfect submission. Perfect submission.